Hey there, listeners. A quick new update for you that I promise is going to be shorter than the last one. First off, Patreon members at $5 a month or higher will be able to listen to ad-free episodes starting at episode 100 and going forward for basically as long as this podcast keeps going. You can listen either in the Patreon app or through Spotify, where you can get an exclusive RSS feed available only to Patreon members. This is one of the easiest ways to support the podcast for just $5 a month, and I hope you enjoy your ad-free experience. Second, those single barrels are almost here. The Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac and picked with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, and the two Jack Daniels Barrelproof Ryes are on their way. Patreon members will have exclusive discounts and prime access. Even a dollar a month means you'll have a few hours more to get those bottles before they're released to the public. Last thing, there are now two spots available in the monthly bottle share club available to patrons at the $25 a month tier. If you're interested, I wouldn't hesitate. I expect the spot to go quickly. If it looks like it's all filled up and you're still interested, shoot me an email and we'll see if we can open up just one more spot. With that, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. And today we will probably mention the word whiskey maybe twice throughout the entire episode because this episode is all about rum and particularly about Holmes Key Rum. And to talk about rum and Holmeski, we have founder of Holmeski, Eric Kay. Welcome on. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Absolutely. So uh, you and I got to meet uh, for the first time last year, I believe, at a Beastmasters event. And if people don't know, Beastmasters is a, it, it's a group based in New York, but I think it has some national reach at this point. And uh, they like high-proof things. <laughs> so I fit in there perfectly. Um, but as do you, I mean, the rums from Holmes Key are, uh, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, single barrel, cast strength. So it fit in perfectly. You had an event with them and got talking and it was great. And then we reconnected recently at the Indie Spirits Expo, yeah. uh, where I got to try some of those Reunion Island rums. And we'll talk about those a little bit later. But as this is the, the first episode we've really done focusing on rum, we're going to start at the basics for a couple things. So the, what is your simplest definition? What is rum? What is rum? Oh, the basis, simplest rum is a spirit made from sugarcane. Uh, the U.S. definition of rum is a distilled spirit uh, bottled no less than 80 proof and distilled to no higher than 95, 190 proof. So if you go above 190, you have vodka or neutral spirit. And if you go below 80 proof, you have a liqueur. Um, and it can be made with molasses. It can be made with fresh cane juice. It can be made with cane syrup, but it has to be made with sugar cane, not beet sugar, but sugar cane. And that's right. basically what rum is. There are other sugar cane spirits like cachaça from Brazil or aguardiente from South America or claran from Haiti, but rum is basically a sugar cane spirit. And is it limited to those three variations of the sugar cane, the, the juice, the sugar cane, and the molasses? Or can you kind of make one part? There are some yeah. people making it from sugar itself um, or a jaggery or panela, mm -hmm. but overwhelmingly 99% uh, of the rum you see in America is made from molasses. Mm -hmm. um, 
some made from cane syrup. Uh, the French tend to use a lot of fresh cane juice. They're not the only ones, but they're famous for their rum agricole, which is fresh cane juice instead of molasses. That is one of my favorite varieties, I got to say. I love the freshness of it. Uh, so you just mentioned what will go into the next question, which is delving a little deeper. The differences between, let's say, British, French, and Spanish style. Sure. So um, th those are really three really broad but useful ways to describe three sort of main traditions of rum making. Um, going back even farther, sugarcane originally is native to Papua New Guinea in Southeast Asia. It made its way across to India. From there, uh, traders brought it to Madeira. In uh, Madeira, the Portuguese brought it down to Brazil, and uh, they started making cachaça there. And then um, around the 1500s, all the Jews got kicked out of Brazil and went to Barbados. And they brought uh, the cane with them. And that's where rum, as we know, it was born in the 1600s in Brazil. Um, so that's what's become to known as the English style of rum making. Uh, practiced in a lot of the in former English colonies, Jamaica, Guyana, Barbados, uh, characterized by pot still rums or a pot column blend. Uh, a little more flavorful, heavier profile, sort of the original. And then you have it's known as the Spanish heritage style or Spanish tradition, which is a newer uh, version because it's made predominantly on column stills, which are a later invention. Um, and it's a lighter rum. The Spanish style rums, um, Bacardi, Havana Club, things like that, Don Q, more meant for mixing, making pina coladas, mojitos. Um, and then you've got the French style, which is really known, famed for their rum agricole, which is the fresh cane juice. It's a little more grassy and floral, sort of like the equivalent of mezcal versus tequila. You know, a lot more terroir in the fresh cane juice. So th those are broadly the three styles. Obviously, there's British countries making French style rum and French making Spanish and all mix of the others. And But those are three real broad categories. Look, I think when you're starting to get into a spirit for the first time, and uh, I've been enjoying rums for a few years now, but now I'm starting to look at them more for just covering them and writing about them. So it's helpful to have the categorization, and then you find the exceptions, right? For sure. But so, when you when you say I want a Jamaican rum, you know you're going to get a heavy pot still, a bit of funk with overripe bananas. If you say you want a, a Puerto Rican rum, generally it's going to be a light mixing rum or, uh, you know, be it gold or dark or, you know, that that's a whole other conversation we'll get into in terms of color and rum. Sure. Um, but absolutely. So with the, oh, I mean, we could jump into that. The, the types of rum that people are likely to see when they walk into a store, if they're not looking at these single barrel or really high end rums, it's going to be. Mm -hmm mainly either a white rum, maybe dark rum, spiced. Yeah. Something like that. And it's really unfortunate that rum has sort of fallen into that white, dark gold because it tells you absolutely nothing about the rum. Color is the most useless way to describe a rum. A white rum can be 
Bacardi or it can be a super high ester, funky, funky Jamaican rum, um, unaged, or it could be a, an aged rum that's been filtered. It really tells you nothing about it. A dark rum, people think darker is older. Generally, dark rums are young rums that are caramel colored to be dark um, because drink recipes call for dark rum. <laughs> and gold rums can be anything from 20 years old to unaged with dyed. Um, there's a great rum brand um, called Hamilton run by a guy named Ed Hamilton. And two of his biggest selling rums are Jamaican pot still gold and Jamaican pot still black. Um, and people buy one of each for their drink recipes. And it's the exact same rum. Um, and he, he's, he's honest. He'll tell you it's the exact same rum. He died and they come out, they're unaged, they're clear rums. He dyes one of them gold with caramel coloring. And then he adds some more caramel and makes one black. And it's literally the exact same spirit with different amounts of flavorless caramel coloring added. And why? Um, because drink recipes call for dark rum and light rum and gold rum. So yeah, co color is completely useless as a descriptor, unfortunately. Um, and you don't see that in whiskey. You don't say, you say, I want a light whiskey. I want a dark whiskey. I, you don't run that risk of somebody walking into a liquor store and saying, you know, I, I want, you know, what whiskey do I buy? And you know, how do you answer that question to a first time whiskey drinker? Right. And you're usually not going to get well, maybe you get the spice whiskey for sure, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the fireball, Here you go. the fireball. Yeah. And that's what um, you're getting in rum. People walk in and they get some of these brands that are heavily marketed and loaded with additives and fake age statements that doesn't exist in whiskeys. You don't go in seeing a fireball next to Macallan 18 on the shelf at the same price. And, and, and you see that in rum, unfortunately. And multiple people have described rum as kind of a wild, wild west when it comes to regulations and, uh, rules like that. So with whiskey, in some ways you can go with the, if it's darker, it's likely to be older. Um, certainly not a hundred percent rule, but likely just more time in the barrel because you can't call it whiskey without in the U S without, uh, if you add any coloring or mm -hmm. like that or straight whiskey at least. And so with rum, it's, you kind of have to take yourself out of the whiskey mind. So I'm, I'm thinking of this as a whiskey drinker mm -hmm. who started whiskey first and then went into rums. Right. So I have to unlearn some things to, you know, judge the rums as they are. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that whiskey and rum are very different. Uh, for example, rum tends to go into the barrel at 75, as high as 85%. Whereas a whiskey, I don't think you'd ever go into a barrel at 85%. Um, I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you do that. And so even ones that are called cast strength or high proof oftentimes have been watered down to get to 60, 65% because you're not going to release an 85% spirit. Right. Although a couple of companies do. Um, the plantation has the OFTD, right? That's, that's only, I think 59 or 61%. It's not that high, but there's a, there's a rum in St. Vincent, a sunset, very strong rum, which is about 85%, but it drinks yeah. like 75. So it's, you know, <laughs> I think 75, that's basically a Koi Hill, Jack Daniels. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that was hot even for me. And I can't imagine doing an 85%. That's no, it's, 
It does say very strong rum. Um, another it, thing it that happens you. is you get very high angel share loss in the tropics in rum. You know, seven to eight percent a year is common. So when you see a twenty-year-old rum or even a ten-year-old rum in the tropics is the equivalent to about an eighteen-year-old whiskey aged in Scotland in terms of barrel influence and angel share loss. Um, and what they do in a lot of countries, because otherwise a 20-year-old rum would have a drop in it. Um, every three to five years in, say, Jamaica or Belize, they'll consolidate barrels from the same run. So say in one distillation day, they'll make 12 barrels. In three years, they'll sort of combine them to 10 barrels. And in five years, eight. So maybe at the end of 20 years, they'll have two or three barrels left rather than just little dregs. Um, I don't think you can do that in whiskey. And these are all considered single barrel rums. I'm just thinking, now, could you do that whiskey? Just because there's, because there's no definition technically right. of, of a single barrel, you can, if you add, if you took That's those 12 true. barrels and put them into a single barrel, you could call that a single barrel whiskey. Now you'd be facetious at best, but right. I, you could do that. But I don't know. I don't think it would be for the same reason because funny enough with uh, the Koi Hill actually a week ago I was talking with Lexi Phillips at Jack Daniels and she said with um, the first batch of Koi Hills is super high proof Jack Daniels barrels it was all single barrels uh-huh. um, but there were some barrels that had very little in them like one tested at about 160 or 165 proof but it had an inch of liquid in it <laughs> so you weren't going to bottle that that it's so what they did was any of the barrels and i think it ended up being about 55 to 60 of them that had so little in them they did consolidate into five batches that they batched Mm -hmm. by proof uh, and those 60 barrels came down to about four and a half barrels yeah and that's kind of what we're dealing with so they they were able to do that i guess but even so you it, the trick is to do that before it gets to an inch left. You know, when you consolidate right. barrels when they're two thirds full, you lose a lot less of it, a lot, you know, right quicker. Right. So that that's just standard par for the course on how rum is made in Jamaica, for example. Um, Mauritius, they have another way of dealing with the angel share loss. You know, they go in at sixty five percent into the barrel, like whiskey. And then after five years, instead of adding more rum, they'll add water and proof it down in the barrel. So after five years, they'll bring it down to 60%. After 10 years, they'll bring it down to 55%. And at 15 years, they'll bring it down to 50%. And that's as low as they'll go. Um, So that's another way of compensating for the heavy angel share loss you get in the tropics. That's funny they would do that. uh, Again, I mean, the comparison to whiskey. We've already said it more than twice, so I lied at the intro. but. you know, you, some brands will go in at a lower proof to start with adding the water because then you get the barrel influence mm-hmm. on the water as well. And I totally get that. And I, there are ones that I like that do that. There are ones that I like that go in at the max at 125 too. But there's something to be said for that. And I guess by adding the water over time, you are getting some barrel influence just because with that high angel share, it's yeah. going to interact with the wood a lot longer. Sure. You're definitely getting a lot of barrel influence still. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's really, you know, one thing it's really hard to express on a podcast is the incredible variety of rum 
you know, comparing a rum from South Africa to Jamaica to Guyana to Australia. I mean, they're almost completely different spirit categories. Um, Whereas whiskey, you know, there obviously are varieties between Isla and Speyside and Canadian whiskey and bourbon, but they're still all recognizable as whiskey. Whereas blind tasting on some of these rums and you'd swear you were drinking a Calvados or a brandy or a peated whiskey or I mean, the the variety of different methods of production, stills, yeasts. um, It's it's really a cool category. Absolutely. And I, I will probably ask a recommendation from you for a someone who can really I know you can, too. But who can really go into those like deep process notes of all the, like you said, the different yeasts, the different stills that they're using. Uh, this being the first one, I do want to focus more on on Holmes Key and, and a couple of the the particular countries and processes there. But there's definitely room for another episode or two on. Oh, yeah. On and I got to listen to the Rumcast uh, because of doing research for this interview. And that's a great podcast. They do a great job over there uh, for if you want to get into rum and want to learn a little bit about it. So yeah, the, the rum cast guys are fantastic. I think they just taped episode 84 or 85 and they've had just about everybody in the rum world on at one point or another. Um, incredible series. If you want to get into rum. Absolutely. I, I'm pacing just ahead of them. I think this will be episode like 106, 107. So fantastic. Like half a year ahead, but no, they, it's great. And to be honest, I had stopped listening to whiskey podcasts unless I was doing research <laughs> because I'd be like, oh, I'm going to maybe have this person on. So I want to wait till I listen later on. And some people I just couldn't listen to anymore. But the with getting into the wrong world, it's a great way to do it. It really is. So, you know, as you said, it's impossible to get into all the different varieties of rum and styles and processes in, in one episode. But I just wanted to throw three terms that we hear a lot in rum mm-hmm. that I've heard a lot in rum. Just throw them at you, rapid fire, and just explain quickly what they are. Sure. So the first one is sulfuring barrels. Sulfur hadn't heard barrels. Of it, before. Um, it happens more often when you're dealing with various wine barrels um and not necessarily the ex-bourbon barrels but sometimes when you're dealing with wine barrels uh, port casks or zin casks to reuse for rum they'll sulfur those barrels to present prevent them from getting you know fungal or bacterial or you know from the barrels going bad you know, you want the influence of the wines, but again, you don't want some bad bacteria in there just completely destroying your spirit. Sure. So it's important to to wash those out and make sure you don't get sulfur in your, you know, spirit, which can happen as a side effect. You can get a bad barrel, which has been sulfured, and then you just throw away a barrel worth of great liquid. It's a not very two common. And... That that's a pretty. De- I thought yeah. you were going to go basic, and you you threw a deep one at me. <laughs> I did. Yeah. This this isn't really in the order that I thought it would be. That should have been the last one. The first one that I should have asked you is Jamaican in particular, Dunder Pits. 
Dunder pits. Okay. So muck pit is different from a dunder pit. So dunder and muck are two different things. So dunder, it comes from the Spanish redondra, is basically using the vinas, you know, what's left over after you do a distillation run on a pot still, whatever is left in the still, you take some of that and you add it into the next batch. You know, it's all, all the good stuff concentrated that's left over. It gives it a lot more flavor. And that is, um, you know, dunder is used a lot in Jamaican rums. It boosts it, gives you a little more funk and ester. And then there's a couple of distilleries. Hamden is one, Long Pond, that they actually have muck pits where they'll take some of the vinas and instead of throwing it out or recycling it, um, they'll have a muck pit which is that and whatever else gets thrown in there. And it's like this black sludgy pit of organic material. Uh, and they'll scoop a little bit out and put it into the next run. And that's how you get really funky Jamaican rums, the classic funky overripe banana hogo Jamaican profile is used. Um, it's created with using dunder and muck and, and open air fermentation, which is an important part of that. It's not a controlled fermentation. They've got uh, fermentation pits open to the elements and whatever bug falls in or wild yeast flies in off the breeze um, really helps supercharge that Jamaican rum flavor. It's, I should say it's, it's weird to look at. I've seen some pictures of it and I haven't seen it in person. But Yeah, no, the muck pits are great and it smells amazing um, if you like, you know, visiting distilleries and... um. Yeah, it's yeah. great stuff. <laughs> but before I give you the third one, I should mention, I said this before, Eric, but um, I'm sipping on the Holmes Key Jamaica 2007. And this was, uh, it's ITP, but it was distilled at mm -hmm. Long Pond. Right. So that's one of the distillers that uses muck. However, mm -hmm. the ITP is a lower ester Jamaican rum. So they don't use muck in that particular style. Um, Jamaica in particular, each distillery makes a different variety of rums called Marks. Uh, Hamden will make eight different Marks and they're categorized by the amount of esters, the ester levels. Uh, this is one of the lower ester Marks that Long Pond makes. So it's not super funky. Um, it's probably closer to the Appleton world than like the Ray and Nephew funky, funky stuff. Yeah, the... I'd almost describe it's not an even just it's not an even comp comparison, of course, but I would describe Jamaican really funky rums almost the same way that you would look at like an Isla Scotch. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily give someone Lafroy the first time you're introducing them to whiskey. Um, but it's a great analogy. Yeah, but I mean, you you can really, and some people love it the first time. Uh, I maybe liked it the second time. It was pretty close. It was I liked this faster than I liked Pete. So I don't know what that says about me, but uh, it's it's quite interesting. But you'd probably start with the Barbados, I would think, if you're going from whiskey. If you're a whiskey person, yeah. Whiskey drinkers in general have a, uh, a tougher leap to go from whiskey to Jamaican rums than they do going to Barbados rums or Belize rums. Um, Barbados in particular, the four square rums, for example, are very, very bourbon friendly. Um you know, it, it's a recognizable profile, whereas a super funky Jamaican rum and a lot of rum drinkers don't like the super, super funky Jamaican rums. Um, you know, the Esther hounds, as we call them, there's, there's sort of a trend 
just as in whiskey, just as in beer to go for the extreme. If there's a number on something, I want the highest number. If there's a triple IPA, a quadruple IPA has got to be hoppier and better. You know, if this is 500 grams per hectoliter of esters, the one with 800 has got to be even better and more intense. And what what's the uh, the peat scale used for Isla? Oh, the PPMs and the... Yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. It doesn't necessarily make a good spirit. You know, sure. numbers, I think, are detraction. It, you should go about looking for a balanced spirit, not the one with the most supercharged, you know, flavors, be it peat or funk or hops um you know to me that's not what makes a great spirit and that leads into uh the third turn that i'm going to throw at you and then we'll go into holmes key and that is uh dosage 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 is is it is it dosage is a cognac term it has no place in rum it's not a thing in rum there's one French uh, rum company that has decided who makes cognac and good cognac has decided to use the term dosage when really they're just adding sugar to rum because sweet mm-hmm. sells. They're they're dosing it and to their credit, they're admitting that they dose it and they list exactly how much sugar they're adding to their rum. But, you know, it, it's not a thing. Rum traditionally did not have sugar added to it. Um, you know, they're making fireball is what they're doing. So then that may be why I was uh, confusing the term a bit. So we do know that there are plenty of rums out there and we don't have to go into names. Of course, that's not our purpose here, but plenty of rums out there that are adding sugar separate from the caramel coloring. Mm -hmm. It's just, this is just by adding sugar and you get a sweeter rum. Of course, it's more palatable. Maybe make a sweeter drink, easier to sip. And mask poor distillate. (laughs) Mask poor distillate. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of BS that happens in rum that does not happen in other categories. You know, it happens to a degree in tequila as well. Um, and there's a lot. Of, and let me specify the difference between caramel coloring and sugar. Caramel coloring is not sweet. It has no flavor. And it's been used for hundreds of years. You know, that, that's been standard in rum to color for batch consistency, to make it look, you know, so that that's an accepted practice in the whole category. Um, but sugar being added is a relatively new thing because Americans have sweet tooths. Um, you see it a lot in the Spanish style rums. A lot of the Spanish rums are notorious for loading it up with sugar and not only sugar, vanillin, um, glycerol for that smooth mouthfeel. If you see a, a bottle of rum and it kind of, drips down the side of the glass when you pour it slowly. That's because antifreeze has been added to it. I mean, propylene glycol. Um, and they're adding, you know, you don't need a lot of it. So it, it floats under the FDA radar, but you know, there's, there's a lot of additives. Some getting as much as 30, 40 grams per sugar per liter. You know, you get a candy bar in every bottle. Um, of course, that's going to taste sweet and smooth when you load it up with vanilla and sugar or sherry syrup or, you know, age it in wet casks with like four liters of sherry in the bottom. Um, it's you, There's a lot of nonsense. Um, some countries do not allow sugar like Jamaican rum. Uh, by their Jamaican rum laws, you cannot add sugar to it. So. 
if you want an unsweetened rum, you're safe going with the Jamaican rum or most of the Barbados rums. So with Cuban that, rum, no sugar added, was another oh, one. And yeah. now we can now we can get that. We can't so. get that, unfortunately. Not no, legally. No, it was legal to bring it back for a while. And then after the last administration, they changed the laws. And now it is currently illegal to bring back Cuban rum again. I had someone who visited Cuba in that period and they brought back some rum and it was oh, yeah. really good stuff. It's amazing stuff. I mean, you can go to London or Canada or anywhere else in the world and get Cuban rum. Um, it's right. my favorite of the Spanish styles by far. Well. Hopefully someday. It's but. not just forbidden fruit. It really is good. No. Rum. <laughs> cigars, the rum. Um, yeah. The food is nothing to bring home, but cigars and rum are amazing. <laughs> so with that, we'll jump into Holmes Key, which sure. is your brand. It's named after you. Uh, yeah. And... I wanted to start with uh, your first release, which was the Barbados 2005. And that was in late 2019, early 2020, right? Correct. September 2019. Right. Yeah. So from the beginning, um, why why did I release a rum? Uh, short answer, I couldn't get the rums I wanted in America. So I decided to bring them in myself. Um, five years ago was a really different time in the rum world. There were no single barrel cast strength rums coming to America. Um, Foursquare was not really bringing them out. Uh, Hamden was not here. Velier was not here. Plantation may have done a couple, um, but really nobody was doing cast strength, no additive rums like you see in Europe all the time. Europe has this strong tradition of independent bottlings and occasionally we'd get some of them here via Samaroli or Duncan Taylor, you know, some of those independent whiskey bottlers would dabble in rum. Um, but I would go over there and I would see these incredible rums that nobody was bringing to America, you know, not having a spirits industry background. I didn't realize how there was a reason for that. And there's a three tier system and 50 distributors for 50 States. And, you know, I, didn't know that. I thought, you know what? I it missed out on the last, uh, and it was Foursquare, the distillery that was the impetus, uh, I think are making some of the best rums in the world. Uh, they've never put out a bad rum. Richard Seal is a fourth generation rum maker um, and arguably one of the best distillers in all categories. Um, so I thought I'd bring a couple of barrels of uh, Foursquare to America and release them. And if I Worst case scenario, I'd have enough Foursquare to last me the rest of my life, you know, 500 bottles or so. Right. And we sold those out in like two or three months. And hence a uh, a company was born and a, and a brand and a, a going concern, I guess, as you call it. And as you just mentioned there, at the time, there really were not a lot of, really weren't any independent bottlers bringing in rum, just those couple of small exceptions. And even today though, yeah, you know, we've we're good friends on this podcast with um you know, Impex Collection, Impex mm -hmm. sponsor. They bring in a bunch of rums. Yep. Uh Raj over at Glass Rev Imports mm -hmm. brings in some uh really funky stuff. Yeah. From uh, uh from Monet Musk. Yep. And that that's where it's too funky for me. That's like my Lafroy in the rum world. It's just it's just too much. <laughs> um 
Impacts and Raj bring in great stuff. Um, and, and it's great. In the last five years, there's been at least four or five independent bottlers just really focusing on rum or, um, or rum with some whiskey as well. But, you know, getting that knowledge and having access to these things that were previously only available in Europe and the Caribbean and elsewhere. So has the, so when you started though, in let's say 2019, but 2018, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. And before thinking about it, uh, when you were figuring out how to bring in those few first few casks, even the first cask period, uh-huh. um, who did you look to for you know inspiration, knowledge, guidance at that time? So one of the, uh, the big sort of, Cheat Sheets was an article written by a guy named Matt Petrick, who has a blog called Cocktail Wonk and the Rum Wonk. Um, he's also written this year one of the most incredible research reference books on rum called Modern Caribbean Rum. It's about 900 pages. And th- that's an essential book to really learn about the spirit. But he wrote an article about independent bottlers, which you know I knew of in Europe, but he explained, you know, one of the reasons why it was so hard, but that there was a company in Liverpool that specialized in rum barrels. And so I reached out to them and saying, you know, this is what I want to do. Can I get some barrels? And they said, sure. You know, do you have your liquor license and all of that? And this was in mid 2018. And it took me about a year then to get all my permits and licenses and state license and federal license and marketing permit and trucking permit and um, all that. But this company has been around for, you know, decades in Liverpool and they specialize in being a broker of third-party rums. And I knew at the time that Foursquare, because everybody in the world in Europe was saying, Oh, I want Foursquare that he would only deal with this one company. So if you wanted to get a Foursquare Barbados barrel, for example, you would just go to this company in Liverpool and they would set you up. So I, I had a uh, sort of had a path for what I needed to do to do it. Um, there were a lot more bureaucratic hassles and troubles in there, distribution, trademarks and licensing, you know, all, all that fun stuff. But uh, buying the rum is the easiest part. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm getting it. Yeah. Uh, we, those are two of the independent bottles we've spoken to. We've also had Lost Lantern on there focused exclusively on whiskey, uh-huh. American whiskey for now at that. Uh, but they faced similar, some similar hurdles in that they didn't face the hurdle of the international barrier, which is yeah. a huge one. Uh, but, you know, the, the barriers of is there a market for a new independent bottler with this focus and such? So, uh, did you at at that time too, once you're figuring out, okay, this is what I, these are the permits I need to get. These are the kind of bureaucracies mm-hmm. that I need to get through. When you were looking at your market and the target that you wanted to hit with that first one, how did you come to what you came to? So I bought four barrels at once uh, to save on shipping. Two barrels were released and two barrels we held on to and stuck into port barrels for a year. We recast it to try and recreate one of their early legendary four square releases. Um, that's, that's a whole other story, but at the time, other than the fact that I, I loved Foursquare, 
um they had the biggest facebook group at the time their fan club had 2000 or 3000 members now i think it's up to 6 or 7000 but i figured i could go to those 2000 people and say hey i have something and um so that was really i didn't know if there were more people like me you know there were some rum forums it was not as big and massive um did not know what the market would be for rums that were 150 dollars a bottle which you know was the price of the first bottle uh and then i needed a place to sell them and i you know like touring with an indie band i loaded up the car and drove around to liquor stores and the reaction i got more than not was there's no such thing as a 150 dollar bottle of rum get get out of here Right. And then there would be stores that had these amazing selections of scotches and bourbons. And they're like, oh, you know, I get what this is. Sure, we'll take a case. Um, yeah. and we only had 80 cases to start with in our first release. So it wasn't a tremendous amount of rum we had to move, but um, it, it was interesting. Sure. Particularly, you're, you've also said on uh, the first episode of the Rumcast, you did. This was the second episode they'd ever done. I think. Yeah, we had just started. Yeah. They had just started. That that's why they right. asked me because they figured he's nobody. He he wouldn't turn us down. <laughs> and I I've been in those early episodes. I and I got very very lucky. Like I had um, not only my first guest who's very very small distiller out west, but you know the first ten I had Mictors on there. I had Taconic. Wow. I had, um, Highland Park was number six, I think. So. That's I got fantastic. super lucky, but I know that's not usually how it goes. Right. Um, but still, I mean, and so at, at the time you'd said that uh, you you don't believe in gateway rums, which I think has been kind of an undercurrent through this conversation, uh, particularly starting with those sweeter ones and then weeding, weaning off the sweetness to the traditional real, if you will, rum. Um, and with that, you're inherently targeting someone who's already into Rome or people who enjoy a high-end scotch, Calvados and Armagnac. So uh, as the years have gone by and there's only three years, four years, so it's not <laughs> decades or something. Um, I know still today, most products from Holmes Key are those single barrels or small batches at cast strength with a couple of exceptions at lower proofs. So I, uh, is that the long-term kind of model you're looking at to have mostly what you started with and that be a representation with that little bit of either lower proof or um, like the Fiji release you did with the guys uh -huh. in the room cast? So, yeah, I started, you know, really just wanting to do cast strength, single cask rums with no additives because that's what I like to drink. Um, and then realized you can only do so much at 100 150 a bottle and some people want to go into a store and say i want a nice bottle of rum and they mean 30 or 40 dollars mm -hmm. um so yeah the first one we did was a young fiji blend which we brought down to 46 percent um and used uh, rums up to two years old and that was really our first bar you know on-premise rum it retailed for under $50 a bottle and you can make cocktails with it. And it was meant for making cool daiquiris. Um, and 
since then we've come out with the single origin line just coming out with younger rums that really don't exist here you know we wanted to bring rums to the market from other countries that we thought were really unusual like the reunion rums you uh, talked about um and then you know i wanted a table rum that i could drink every day mix with it do whatever i want and buy for 39 bucks a bottle so we created that this year the heritage blend combining all three styles which i hadn't seen done which is part english part french and part spanish um put out at 43%, um, which to me is my everyday rum for everything. You know, and that to me is the unsweetened gateway rum. When you talked about gateway rums, that that's really defined as the rums that are really popular. Most people getting into rum saying, oh, I love this rum. It's so smooth. And it's smooth because it's loaded with sugar and glycerol. And some people don't care. But once people learn that this rum tastes this way because it's loaded with additives, um, you know, I, I would prefer to add my own sugar if I'm making a cocktail. I'd rather not pay for it in the uh, in the whiskey bottle. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended Scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's Nose is both a nod to Arden Market's rugged Western Peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula, and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who, much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Sure, you're in that way too. Uh, this was from the second interview you did with, uh, with Rumcast. It was a year and a half later or so that um rum was kind of like you estimated it was kind of like five years behind mezcal 10 years behind tequila mm-hmm. both in terms of appreciation but also getting rid of that uh i think you what did you say the um i want to get the thing right the pirate and party um yeah. version and really right, into some something treat. that right like there are still rum you can still have rums that are like that but but to show people that just like tequilas and mezcals and i would even throw um gins in there as well recently there's a place for them in high-end cocktails as sipping drinks as high quality spirits in and of themselves as well so with that said the with the let's say five years behind mezcal 10 years behind tequila um, that was in 2021. Did COVID or anything else kind of change that timeline for you in terms of slowing or quickening the appreciation? COVID was a good time to start a luxury alcohol brand. I have to say, you know, we started the year before, but people were just staying at home drinking really expensive things and experimenting with pricier things than they would have. 
because the world was going to end. So let's, you know, drink and be merry and drink the good stuff. Um, you know, in the four years, we've seen an explosion of the rum aisles um, in the high-end stores and whiskey stores. That you'll now see 10 or 15 really good quality cast-strength rums that, you know, five years ago you would see nothing. So we're, we're getting there. But then you go to and see a tequila aisle and it's you know way more than i mean i remember when you go to the tequila aisle and there would be cuervo and there would be the one mezcal with the worm in it and and that that was it pretty much and there would be maybe a cheaper one but and now you'll see a hundred tequilas and single village mezcals from all over um it's it's awesome to see and we're getting there um, but the demand is to tequila and bourbon outsell rum 10 to one. So part of the reason you're not seeing it yet is because the demand isn't there yet. You know, bourbon is this monolith and now tequila is shooting up and the, the rocks tequila is selling a billion cases or whatever, a million cases a year now. And there hasn't been a next generation rum that is hitting those numbers yet like a Patron or a, a Terramana or a Aviation Gin. There hasn't been that category killer to take on Bacardi or something like that in a premium level. There's not a Grey Goose. Um, so we're not there yet. And once that happens and rum sales start matching, like I'll go in and I'll taste stores that do 40 whiskey picks a year. And they'll say, wow, this is incredible. You know, if this was bourbon, I'd buy 40 cases from you. But, you know, let's try one case. Because rum doesn't sell. It doesn't sell in cocktail bars. It doesn't sell in liquor stores. Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but it's a sad fact that it, it is, you know, the minority in spirit sales. We're hoping to change that. And a lot of us are. Sounds like a... Uh... Not that I'm advocating for celebrity with uh, celebrity spirits brands, because well, I'll put it this way: the celebrity whiskey brands mm-hmm. have mostly been not great. Yeah, um, the gins. I mean, I gotta admit, I like Aviation. Um, I'm not really a tequila person, so I can't speak to those. But um, you know, some of the gins that have been put out, some of the other spirits, mm-hmm. I'm not celebrity or pretty good aviation was a brand before ryan reynolds got involved you know he he liked it and got involved and brought it to a whole other level but they were making a good gin before he got involved um and he got in for the right reasons but the other people whose managers say what you need for your brand as a celebrity is to have an alcohol that's generally not the right i mean he went and he started an ad agency to help market his gin Uh, you know he he really was involved with the brand. Um, yeah. And you said you hear the same stories like George Clooney walking around and going into stores to sell Casamigos cases. And the breaking the bad guys with their. Right. Uh... Yeah. So, th- yeah, there's some that kind of take the higher road, I guess, but or the right reasons, I think there's a better way to put it, like you said. But it sounds like we need someone to do that for rum as well and just really blow it up as a premium spirit. Yeah trying i mean bruno mars has a rum uh kenny chesney has a rum which is blue chair bay which is Mm. a for the most part a flavored rum 
you know, it's it's a it's a fireball and he sells millions of cases of it, but it's it's not a serious spirit. Um Ciara is involved in 10 to 1 rums. Um problem is, you know, you mentioned that and people say who is Ciara? You know, she's not George Clooney. <laughs> But yeah, there hasn't been that super megastar like a Lenny Kravitz or, you know, uh, I always thought Idris Elba would be a great rum brand owner. Everybody loves Idris Elba. They do. And I feel like you'd have to get him away. I feel like he's going to be a gen guy just because he's he's got a ultra British. I think he has a rose, unfortunately. But But maybe we can get him. You know, if you go to England, they are drinking tons of rum. You know, more rum than gin, I would say. French also. The French drink a tremendous amount of rum. Um, both of those countries drink rum more than we do. The French, should be noted, they they have the highest per capita whiskey consumption. They have the highest per capita um, age spirit consumption oh. of any country in the world. And even just gross numbers are insane when you look at it, but that's a whole that's a whole different tangent because um, they're not beer they're drinking wine yeah. and, and brandy and whiskey and rum and right so i'm just curious and maybe this is too tenuous a connection but go with me on this yeah, let's Be- go so before the american revolution mm-hmm. rum was was basically our spirit as well it was oh. made all over the country well mm-hmm. all of the east coast let's say uh, it's what we drank. There may be some whiskey, but it was just local. It was really rum was the spirit of choice. Rum was America's drink. Right. And of course that changed because they it got seen as British and we didn't want to drink it anymore. So we went to bourbon or what became bourbon and whiskey and mm-hmm. rye. Uh, now this is, we're talking 250 years later, almost at this point. Yeah. Um, but is it, do you think that the reason let me rephrase it. Do you think that America's seeming reluctance to adopt rum still stretches back that far? Or is it just that because it's that far and because we had so many years without rum as a major spirit, they just gravitated to different spirits. And as such, rum has to kind of get a foot in the door first. Well, rum started to come back in vogue in the 30s and 40s, you know, after 150 years with uh, Trader Vic and Mm -hmm. Don the Beachcomber and the whole tiki movement and tropically Mm -hmm. and airfares to Cuba and Havana and the Caribbean. And people were going down there at Sloppy Joe's and drinking daiquiris and pina coladas and that's where rum got this reputation from being a new England Medford rum, like a whiskey to let's go down to Havana and drink pina coladas and rum and Coca-Cola's. And that became sort of that cocktail drink rather than let's drink a whiskey. Um, And then you have this monolith, hugely successful company in America, Bacardi, which is really a spirit category unto its own, you know, nothing about the quality of their rum, which is good rum, but they're known for making a white rum, basically um, meant for mixing. And people think of, you know, like Q-tip has become the name of the cotton swab you stick in your ear. Bacardi has become synonymous with rum in a lot of places. So you don't think of Bacardi as something you want to sit by the fire and sip. You want it in your Coke. (laughs) 
Um, so those are some of the things that have been holding it back. Uh, because people, you know, the number one reaction I get when I'll go to a whiskey tasting or something and I'll pour people and they'll say, this is rum. I had no idea rum tasted like this. Mm-hmm. And that that's the issue, you know. <laughs> People don't that think was, as yeah. being what actually is. That was really my reaction when I when I tried it with you at the Beastmasters event. Yeah, you know, I had some what I'd consider kind of higher end rums, but nothing of the same ilk for sure. And we tried, I think we tried like seven or eight rums that night. Yeah. Um, so you know, even I can't remember exactly what we tried, but of all of them, but um, some were picks and all of that, but. The point is that there's there's such a world out there to explore with this. Even if you just went island hopping and then continent hopping, because we've mentioned Mauritius and uh, Reunion Island, these are off the coast of Africa. You know, we're not even in the Caribbean anymore. We're not near the Caribbean. This is other side of Africa, in the Indian Ocean, and that's fantastic style rum to talk about. Then you go to South America; it's different, and. I think something to be appreciated and you can appreciate this through the Holmes key brand is that you get to try these styles. And I, I think it would be fair to say that when you put out a single cask or a single origin, you're putting something out that's going to represent what that country or in the you know, case of a just single distillery, that distillery, what that character really is and represents. Like if you're putting out a Foursquare or Barbados cask, it's representative Barbados. So you're putting out these different Jamaica ones. They're representative of what you should expect from a Jamaican high-quality rum. On the flip side of that, then, because you get to travel all over and see all these different countries and taste these rums, I should note, I'm, you know, I'm friends with you on Facebook. I get to see all the different places you're traveling in. My God, you must have miles. Um, <laughs> Do you feel a um, any sense of like extra responsibility then to introduce these rums and give more background information to say it's not just what's on the label, it's also this represents something, this represents country uh, style? 100%. I mean, again, my background is not distilling. If you ask me technical terms on how the rum is made, I'm not the guy for that. You know, I know in the broad sense, obviously, how to make rum, but, you know, I consider us more curators than, you know, producers. I like to go around, you know, it's rough, fly around the world, visit my favorite distilleries and try and convince them to sell me barrels of rum. Um. And for example, Reunion Island off the coast of Africa, I flew there because there's this legendary distillery, Savannah. Um, And they let me walk around in the warehouse with a siphon and tap any barrel I wanted to and taste them. And each one was more magnificent than the next. Um, One in particular, uh, I was begging them and they're like, sorry, we're we're not going to sell you any of these. (laughs) We'll let you try them, but... You know, we release them, but we will sell you some unaged rum if you want. And to that point, we'd never put out an unaged rum. You know, I I always drank cast strength aged rums. That's what I love to sip on. But these rums were so incredible and they'd never been seen in the United States. So I said, you know what? Here's our single origin line. These are two incredible rums from Africa. They're completely unaged and white. They're going to be under $50 a bottle. 
And they're really examples, you know, African agricole and the Grand Arome. Um, it's the only country outside of the Caribbean and Madeira that makes rum agricole as sanctioned by the EU. And there's only two distilleries in the world that make Grand Arome, which is the French high ester rum, the really funky, um, sort of a French version of a Jamaican rum. Um, and I, I thought they needed to see the light of the United States. Obviously, they're well known in France, but uh, I, I was really, you know, happy and proud to bring those to the states. I mean, when I tried those at the Eighty Spirits, I, I walked over to you just to paint a picture for people. I walked over, said hi. We had just um, hadn't seen each other in a while, but I, I kind of reintroduced and. Um, we were also talking about, this is a separate episode that I want to do, but we were talking about this 17-year-old um, Appleton that had recently come out. The Ray and Nephew um, The Ray and Nephew 17. Um, and I said, I looked at what you had on the table and I was like, most, I, I all great things, I'm sure. I knew I had to kind of pace myself because you have to go to different booths and all of that. So I was like, I have something from that country and that country, that country, what's something really new. And you pulled out those reunion bottles. And if I think I had the same reaction that I had the first time I had real Jamaican rum where with the, the funkiness from that, where it's just like nothing to your point earlier. It's, I don't know that I would have classified that off the bat blind as a rum. I wouldn't have known to. And the first one in particular was so uh, smoky and dare I say peaty. It's not peat, but but the smokiness of it was reminiscent of that. And I was like, this would be the perfect rum to give to someone who really likes peat or mm -hmm. smoke in their whiskeys, because they'll be like, this is okay. This can this can really stand up. The second one was a little more. Um, comparatively mild. I don't think it was objectively mild, but it was comparatively <laughs> mild to the first one. And um, it, so that one might be kind of more the gateway, if you want to use that word, uh, to the second one. But it was so unique. And, you know, not, again, not knowing a lot about the, these hugely different worlds of rum, country by country sometimes. Uh, I'm curious how that reunion island tradition of that style of rum came to be sure so reunion a little background is actually part of france it's a french territory like hawaii is a u.s state so mm -hmm. it's really like the french hawaii in the middle of indian ocean it's this massive mm -hmm. volcano sloped with sugarcane fields um and it's it's the longest domestic flight in the world it's about 13, 14 hours from Paris to Reunion, and you don't need a passport for that flight because you're within France. Um, but so obviously they make rum in the French tradition. Um, they they make millions of bottles of just industrial multi-column steel rum that goes for mixing and sold a lot to Africa for you know neutral spirit. But then they've got their heritage stills. They've got this old copper Saval still which they fire up only a few weeks of the year um, because they're French. They do make their rum agricole. There's only five places in the world that can make rum agricole as recognized by the EU. 
you know, it's a, it's a recognized term like cognac or champagne. Those being a Martinique, Guadeloupe, French Guiana, uh, Reunion, a reunion, and interestingly, the island of Madeira, which is Portuguese, but uh, they've been making this style of rum for long enough that they got EU approval as well. But uh, rum agriculture, really fresh cane juice. You need to have fresh cane right there. You need to work with it within 24 hours before it starts to go bad. Uh, and, and they make it only for a few weeks a year. Um, and then the other rum, the Grand Arome, uh, it's the same still, but instead of the fresh cane juice, they use molasses as a base. And then they do a really long fermentation. The agricole is a quicker fermentation. Uh, the Grand Arome is a 10-day fermentation. Um, it's controlled. It's not completely wild, but uh, it's a long fermentation Um with special strains of yeast that they've created for this to get those supercharged esters. Um, and, and that's also a defined term to make Grand Arome rum. The French have just defined it as having over 600 grams of esters and 800 grams of volatile compounds per hectoliter. Um, two very distinct styles. Um, the other distillery that makes it is Le Galleon on the island of Martinique. And those are the only two uh, distilleries that make this style of rum. It's it's a pain in the ass to make. It's you know it's expensive. It's yeah, longer fermentation takes more money. Yeah. The more esters as well. It's it's almost. A, but does it have the same kind of following as as like an Octomore in the sense that, as you're saying earlier, you just go after the numbers and you really want those. I just you know you want to be able to say you've you're drinking a rum with 600 plus. Well, the good thing yeah. about that is they don't really list the, I mean, we don't, we don't ever list the number of esters. You know, I'll talk about it being a medium ester. And to be honest, I don't even test to see what the actual number is because I don't care. It's less important to me than the style and the overall balance of the rum. But yeah, Grand Arome has its fans. Um, Savannah has its fans for sure. Um, the bigger fans are those of the supercharged Jamaican rums, you know, the, the highest ester marks of each of the distilleries, the TECC, the DOK, the, uh, you know, these supercharged rums. Um, but yeah, there are absolutely people that like every rum has a fan. And I should ask too, since your some of your inspirations were from Samaroli and Velier mm -hmm. and not being able to get those, uh, now that we accept the 700 mil bottles in the U.S., are we expecting to see any more of those, or that's still kind of staying over in Europe? Oh, they're they're starting to come. They're mm -hmm. absolutely they're starting to come here. So we're seeing more mm -hmm. of those. I mean, it, it's not just the bottle size; it's the fact that you need 50 distributors for 50 states, and so maybe New York will get some of it, or California will get some of it, but. Right. I just know I've seen some of the Velias in particular at um, at Aster. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to find something, you usually go to Aster first. Yeah, as we both know, uh, they have one I've been thinking about pulling the trigger on. But um, honest to God's story, I went in there aiming to get that bottle, and I ended up coming out with the Holmes Key bottle instead. So um, they've put out some incredible Hamden. You know, they're funky. Oh, yeah. They're the Velia Hamden releases are. Just wonderful. There's one 
on the bottom shelf uh, in their case. Yeah. I think if it's still there next time, I'll pull the trigger. But in the yellow box. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, so uh, back, back to these rooms. So Reunion Island uh, being one of the areas that really is underrepresented. I, I'd certainly never heard of it as even the very casual rum drinker. Uh, in a couple of podcasts, you you also mentioned other areas, and this is more from like 2021 or so. So mm-hmm. I figure two years ago, <clears throat> you said there were other underrated corners of the rum world that really needed attention. This is this was the list that you gave at the time. It was Japan, mm-hmm. South Africa, Thailand, Mexico, and Suriname. Yeah. Yeah, I still agree. Uh, and I would expand that to more countries in Southeast Asia. There's incredible craft rums coming out of the Philippines right now. Um, Cambodia, Vietnam started some new distilleries. Um, India started making some. India has always had three of the top five selling rums in the world. Um, you know, Old Monk, McDowell's, they're sweetened. They're not necessarily even sugar. But now some of these whiskey distilleries, because there's some phenomenal Indian whiskeys, are, are starting to make rum because they've had sugar cane there for thousands of years. Uh, so there's no reason they shouldn't be. And you're starting to see some incredible Indian rums now. Um, the Australian craft rum movement is exploding. There's 65 distilleries in Australia making rum right now. Wow. Yeah. Um, most of them, I mean, some of them are 100, 150 years old, but, you know, dozens of them are all created within the last 10 years. With that, let me just jump in there with saying, so in Australia versus Southeast Asia, hmm. um, are you generally seeing style wise that they're being in line with their kind of formal former colonizers like australia making more british style southeast asia more french style um i wouldn't call the southeast asians making the french i mean the philippines was a spanish colony right yeah we should separate that yeah right um thailand was one of the only countries in the world that was never colonized by anyone so you know they they make their own um you know, Philippines, they have a tradition of making, you know, rum from panela, which is the, you know, brown sugar. Uh, they'll make it from cane juice. They'll make it from molasses. Um, generally, the Australians are following the traditional British style of pot still, heavier, you know, re- really flavorful rums. Sure. I'm just thinking because it's one of those cases where you have sugar cane there, like you said, in India in particular for thousands of years. And, but at least to my knowledge, there wasn't really a rum or a sugarcane based spirit there. And I, honestly, at this point, I'm kind of just spitballing because I don't know. I didn't look into this thread before the interview, so I've got nothing to back this up. Sorry. Um, so I'm just asking the question. India sells uh, millions and millions of bottles of rum. It probably second only to whiskey. Um, they they sell tens of millions of bottles of whiskey. Um, but also Indian rum. Uh, but again, it's cheaper. It's often sweetened. Um, it's, but because there's 1.2 billion people, uh, they sell a lot of rum. Yeah. They took over from China. They're now the number one populated country in the world. Number one, the number one selling rum in the world, however, 
Do you know what that is? No. Yeah, it's from the Philippines. It's called Tandue. And they they sell over a billion, I think, bottles of rum. They're by far the largest, over a billion dollars worth. They're by far the largest uh, volume of rum sales in the world. That's insane. I think Bacardi is number two. I mean that that I believe I was figuring. Yeah, you well, the think... way the way the way you asked the question, I knew it wasn't Bacardi because that would have been too obvious an answer. But oh. um, okay. um. Okay. so you mentioned a couple that you would you know add to that list, that original mm-hmm. list from a. The, are there are there countries you still haven't gotten to that are really high on your list? Oh yeah, many many. I mean, there's, there's a lot of countries I need to visit and not enough time. Um, you know, I'm either traveling around the country selling it or, you know, trying to build this rum company and I need to find, you know, taking a trip to the Philippines and visiting three or four distilleries and three or four parts of the country, you know, that's a good 10, two week trip right there. And just for that one country. And, you know, right now with our company of three, it, it's hard to, be able to take two weeks off and just go uh, visit Southeast Asia. I'm not going to go all the way to the Philippines without stopping in Thailand and without stopping there. And, um, you know, if I'm going to go all the way over to South Africa, it's only a four hour flight to reunion. And from there it's 45 minutes to Mauritius and the Seychelles is just North of there. So all making rum, you know, that's another two week trip. Um, And not at the stage now where I can be sourcing for, six months out of the year <laughs> as much as i would like to there fiji so, is a trip i need to make yeah so that leads to one of my next questions was uh when you came out with the single origin fiji uh-huh. um that was your uh second feature because fiji was one of the first three bottlings you did exactly right yeah so um kind of going back to that that uh, responsibility, if you will, to introduce these rums as something that people should appreciate and mm-hmm. you know, be willing to pay the money for and and take the time for. Um, when you're talking with uh, David at K and L, this is on um, Day Drinking with David, great YouTube series from K and L Spirits. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the Fiji rum in particular was really fun because it, it had no reputation in the U.S. and uh, so you couldn't know how people were going to respond to it if they would respond to it. And do you, how much do you really enjoy that? Um, just being able to, you know, you're not making it up obviously, but being able to just bring all that information to people and be like, this is something you have never tried before. And I love it. I love it. And not only something like Fiji, but, I get the reaction with a Jamaican rum or a Barbados rum because the vast majority of Americans have never really had a Jamaican rum, even Appleton's, for example, which is the biggest and most well-known. I mean, to most of America, all of these rums are brand new. So I I like, you know, saying try this to the rum geeks like we did with the reunion rums. I mean, that was like you've never had this rum before. It's a lot of fun. You know, I, I could be a bit pedantic on rum. I, I can sit and talk about rum for hours upon end. So, 
mean, that's what this podcast is here for because I love people who can do that. They're the most fun to talk to. Uh, and because I sound so sarcastic, that came out sounding sarcastic. I really mean that sincerely, though. All good. Um, so there's so many questions I want to ask on this, but I guess coming back to the that conversion from any other spirit to mm-hmm. rums. Again, coming from the whiskey side, uh, I was thinking about this and that I didn't really have any guidance when I got into rums. It just kind of happened randomly. And I naturally used Glencairn. Uh, it's what I use for all the nosings and tastings just to provide a baseline. When you're going through these different rums and, and all these different countries, do you have recommendations on what kind of glassware people should be thinking about and how to appreciate them the most to get the most flavor out of them? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Um, largely depends on the proof. Um, I think Glencares are great for anything you know, under about 50, 52%. When you get above 55% and you get a much more higher proof and concentrated, I like to drink some of them with a little wider rim, and then I'll go with a Japanese whiskey glass or just something a little more cylindrical that doesn't concentrate the nose as much because you take a good whiff of 130 proof spirit and you're just going to blow out your nose. I don't care how well trained it is. So, um, and I, you know, I always taste it first neat. And then if it needs, I'll add in a few drops of water. I, I tend to avoid ice cubes unless it's a young spirit. Um, for older stuff, I, I find that ice tends to shock the spirit a little much. Um, that said, if you like drinking it with ice, be my guest. You bought it, you drink it however you want. To me, it loses some of the magic when you chill it that quickly, and then it gets diluted beyond once the ice melts. Um, but drinking a really young, a three-year-old rum, I, I'm happy to throw some ice cubes in and just drink it straight. But for the most part... Our bottles say on the back, you know, best enjoyed neat with a small splash of water. Um, you know, we bottle generally between 55 and 62, 63%. And that, that's a lot. You know, it, it's hard to drink 123 proof spirit unless you do it every day. And so adding some water, you know, even the Belize ones, I, I recommend that it changes drastically. Um, but I didn't want to bottle it at 52% because I wanted people to be able to dilute it to whatever strength they liked. Sure. You can always you add, add water in. Water, can't take it out. Exactly. Uh, I find that most with, with the ice. When I started drinking whiskey, it was on ice for that reason. I needed it to be cold to take away that burn. But now I just, I'm with you in the terms of it's yours. Drink it however you like it mm-hmm. um, and drink whatever you want. But for me, yeah, I, I I do use like a either cube or um, something cold, like a, a stainless steel, something like that, that'll cool it down without watering it down. Um, but yeah, I was really thinking about that because, and that's a good point to make too. If you have something that's so high proof, any spirit, for that matter, that you're concentrating all that, you are just going to blow out your nose, unless you either have a wider rim, right? And not, and you know, don't go. Let's not go too wide on this. Some people use these like cognac snifters or these giant glasses. And like everything is just getting evaporated right. immediately. 
So don't go too wide, but it doesn't have to be as narrow as Glen Cairn. Could be a little more tulip shaped, a little opener on the top. Um, but yeah, that's it was something I hadn't thought of when I first started. And I think it would have been helpful to know that. And I would have appreciated some of those rums a little more had I known that a little different glassware, having just two or three different types to taste something in is yeah. really helpful. And then ultimately, if you're just having a pour of it, I mean, right now I'm enjoying it in a re regular rocks glass. That's and perfectly fine. Regular, you know, there's the, a the Japanese one. I forget who makes it, but it's super thin. And I end up breaking half of them because I put them in the dishwasher. Um, but I mean, I really love the really thin, the thin walls of that Japanese whiskey glass. Um, I, I don't want to take I got to admit, we're diverging on that one. I, I like a rocks glass that really has some weight to so, it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I I got a shout out. Four Roses puts out some really nice glassware that like your hand sinks when it goes into it. That's great. Um, that's myself. But again, to each his own, drink it how you like it. Exactly. There's no wrong answer when it comes to alcohol. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know if you could tell, but I'm really not precious about the spirit it's supposed to be a pleasure you know whatever gives you pleasure is the right answer yeah i agree and the more these are, are you know the more your palate will develop and things that you may have thought were wonderful five years ago as you progress on your rum journey or your whiskey journey or you know will be undrinkable um you know some of those sweet rums i love 20 years ago Nobody knew there were added sugar. There was nothing else to compare it to. Um, oh, wow, this is the pinnacle of rum. And then I got some of these unsweetened rums. And, you know, it, it's a journey. It is. And uh, I really do appreciate you coming on because, uh, you know, your Homeski is not a, a sponsor. This is purely a, a friendship and a, a connection that's been built around rum. Uh, but the fact that you have these single origin, the single countries at cast strength, unadulterated, it's like when someone wants, you know, what is a true Heaven Hill product? What's a really classic Jim Beam or whatever? You got to go to the source. You got to try the original. And I also yeah. think if you're going to try anything that's finished, if you're going to try anything that's in a cocktail, you you need to try that original spirit to really appreciate what's being done with it. And with Homsky and the uh, single origin series and you get to really do that so i look forward to keep doing that i've got a couple on my shelves right now i have the you know belize a mauritius two or three jamaicas uh i do want to pick up a fiji and uh, a couple others i'm sure that i'm just going to come across and see what i can find uh, but with that for this episode at least we'll start closing out so eric thank you so much for taking the time to come on and tell us all the goods and the bads about rums and all the different styles just give us a good primer uh i i could easily have talked for another hour so we may do another one in six months um absolutely you'll have me back <laughs> you are always welcome always welcome to come back and we've, you've always got new rums coming out so we've got more rums to talk about and more countries and we'll ask i'll ask you which places you've visited since this one this so, one you know, the next month, but, DC and Phoenix and Los Angeles and San Francisco and 
Denver in Boston and yeah, a lot, a lot of selling the rums is the next couple of months. And then uh, we'll get to leave the country again. Exotic locales, all of them, of course, but in the, in the meantime, uh, again, thank you for coming on. It's been fantastic. We'll definitely have you on again. Hang on with me for a sec after we finish recording uh, in the show notes, as always, you will have links to social media links to the website where you can find where you can buy those rums. Uh, and um, if I can. I'll also throw up a couple of bars where you can try some of the rums too, if you're in an area that has them. And with that, it's been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast, the uh, Rum Ring Podcast for this particular week. Hope you guys enjoyed. Really hope you try some rums and some good rums at that in the next few weeks. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you all next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmyweddingring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.